Chapter Three. The next morning, when Gom went to fetch up water from the spring, he was startled by a flurry of wings. Good day. The harrier landed on a branch above him. Gom smiled. Good day. You feeling better? The bird flew ahead a little way, then settled again, waiting. You are gone. Your friends back there told me. With a nod, Gom walked on. And you? Who are you? Dicky. I live down in the marshes. I nested many seasons there. Right now, I need food. It rose up in a rush of feathers and flew off. Gom watched it go. Nested many seasons. A full-grown harrier, and therefore female. KK, a sudden creature. And strange. On his way back indoors, Gom looked in on the horses. You saw the bird then? Yes, Stormfleet said. She came to find you, said Heveron. She did. I wonder why. Not to thank him, evidently. Wild creatures don't have to give reasons," Stormfleet said. "Even when they have 'em," Heveron snorted. Which he did. Oh. The two horses exchanged glances. Stormfleet blew out his lips. She's a widow. I see," said Gom. But he didn't really. Like certain other birds, geese, and swans, and eagles, kestrels, redstarts, and loons, harriers paired once for life. When one mate died, the survivor lived out its days alone, even in the midst of the flock. Sad, for such a bird to sit by every year, watching its fellows nesting and rearing young. Sad, but what has that to do with me? Hevron bared his teeth. She's come to live by her. I mean, but harriers don't live on mountains. Neither do wild horses of the Varg," Stormfleet said, and taking up a mouthful of breakfast hay, he began to chomp it with great noise. Outside, Gom gazed skyward. Was the little marsh hawk serious? Did she really intend to stay up here? Or was it just a passing impulse? The rest of the day, Gom watched out for her. Went to bed, disappointed. 
But next morning, J.K. was by the front door. It's clearing nicely, she said. She followed him down to the creek, splashed herself while he bathed and filled Falcon's pail, scolding him non-stop. Bright and early spring that we're having, she said. Every young unbonded creature is already busy seeking a mate and a nesting place. But you, instead of preening yourself and strutting for the hens, you shut yourself away up here with a bag of old dried bones. Why? Gone bent over the water, looking down at his reflection. Taking his time, preening and strutting indeed. No amount of preening would ever make a peacock out of him. Long face and chin, bent nose, dark, deep-set eyes with sharp, shrewd look that put folk on their mettle. The whole surrounded with a shock of straight brown hair that stuck out in all directions, no matter how often he combed it. He sighed down at his reflection. The image of Parga everybody said, and yet those features looked so well on her. But her son? Too plain, too clever, with a look old beyond his years. No hen for him. Why, he was not free even to think of such things. He straightened up, saw K.K. still waiting for his answer. I have to, he said. I have important work to do. Yeah, she retorted. Important work, my tail feathers. What work can be more important than building a nest and having young? You're not as clever as I thought. At that moment, Gom was inclined to agree with her. He picked up Folgan's water pail and started back to the house. It would be nice, K.K. said, fluttering after him with a fair display of effort. To ride your shoulder? All this Hopping tires me out. Gom nodded gravely. I'll see what I can do. Later that morning, Gom took an old saddle from the back of the horse's cave and cut it up to make a shoulder pad and a simple gauntlet so that Keke could come to his hand or ride his shoulder as he went about his chores. Still, she didn't thank him. You must be glad to have me. You look as though you could use some cheerful company. Gom laughed aloud. Stormfleet and Hebron are the best friends a body could wish for. Though, he added hastily, it is good to have you too. And I hope you'll stay. But won't you miss your folk? I might. 
but it's going to be much more lively up here. And think, in time when you travel, I'll get to meet other kin who spread around the world, you know. Wherever there's Fenland, that's Marsh. There's just one plan I did not visit. One place I did not see. You neither, if you have sense. And what place is that? K.K.'s feathers fluffed out until she looked quite big and fierce. Sundor. It's a bad place, full of men with knives and bows to hunt a body down. Why my cousins persist in nesting there, I can't begin to guess, when there are so many better places to live. I agree with you, K.K. My mother has told me about that fen. There's a mountain in the middle of it, I believe. It was marked on the map Carrick had given him, and on Hargus Globe. A hollow mountain, a low peak beneath which evil King Galt ruled his band of thieves and murderers. Mountain? K.K. ruffled her feathers. Mountains are high and noble. Sundborg is more an abscess in a running saw. And yet, she went on, they say it was fair once when old King Gorpid ruled. It's a wonder any creature lives in that poisonous waste. Don't ever go there. My mother warned me to steer clear. Gom stroked K.K.'s feathers smooth. So, don't worry. We'll never go near that place. Buds swelled on the trees and burst, bailing the valleys below with pale green lace. One year since he'd left Windy Mountain to seek his mother, since he'd been set upon by Katak Skalber and had fallen down the bluff, one year almost to the day since Horton Mudge had nursed him back to health, since he had met with Zamul the Conjurer and Carrick, Master Tinker, Eight months since he'd come into this place, and still no sign of spell. Patience, Heveron said. How many more times must we have this out? As you are Argus' son, Fulgan's slow to trust you. But not to use my services, Gum grumbled. That night, after he'd recorded all that he had learned that day, he took a clean sheet of parchment and began to write. More than one half year since I began my apprenticeship, and still Falcon has not let me into his workroom. I'll bet Matt is having a better time of it with Bokar Rithik. Not fair! to be used as a skivvy, and to be kept from my rightful due. How much longer before I can get on with things? And in spite of my friends downstairs, I am so lonely. I wish 
I could see how the gun paused, then upraised. Better not say where she was. Not that Fulgham was likely to come in and spy on his private writings. But even so, Hager had told him expressly not ever to speak of it in any way. And Carrick and Essie. I wish I could spend one, just one evening in the Jolly Fisherman. Carrick would be on his way there right now, down from Greenvale in Deeping Valley, down a long, long valley for his spell in Penlangoth Market. Sighing, Gorm set down his quill, thinking of the great and bustling city, of Lake Langoth and Scandibar, its island citadel, of the wide avenues, the narrow winding streets down by the fishing quarter, of the inn and Essie and Brodie Leggett. Every young unbonded creature is already busy seeking a mate and a nesting place. He put all thought of her from his mind. But looking back now, he remembered the night in Essie's parlour when Brodie had brought him the dish of sweetmeats. She, clearly wanting his favour, he, much too caught up in finding a master to pay her much attention. Idly, he drew Brody's face, the round cheeks that flushed in the space of a breath, short nose, dark eyes with a hint of a smile. Seeing what he had done, he hastily scribbled it out. Six years and more, until he saw her again. Unless Fulgan went there sometime on business. Maybe, if the old man did, and took Gom along, Gom could slip away to see his friends. And Brodie. On that hopeful thought, Gom put his writing things away and lay down to sleep. At last, as the first spring leaves turned to deeper green, Falgan called Gom up the workroom stairs. His heart going at a clip, Gom climbed, trying to look, to be calm. The wizard had finally decided to accept him. Gom stepped out under a high vaulted roof, looking eagerly about, mindful of his mother's dusty clutter. The lamplit workroom stretched back under hollow rock as Hargis had. There the resemblance ended. Instead of Hargis' lucky chaos, here were stringent 
order and cleanliness. Whatever stones the wizard possessed were stored away somewhere. His books, sentinels of knowledge with gilded spines, stood to attention on neat shelves running the length of one wall. Benches ran down the room in tidy ranks, standing four square. Most were clean and bare, save for centre racks of flasks and jars, each filled to tidy levels with powders and crystals and liquids. Two benches only showed any sign of present use. On one, a lamp burned with a blue flame. Over the flame sat an earthen bowl from which vapour trailed up to the cavernous roof. Beside it stood a heavy jar, stoppered with a stout cork bung. Around the jar stood glass bottles and various dishes and tools and tubes and flasks of the strangest shapes. On a second bench nearby sat a large black box, padlocked. Now, Falgan said, leading Gon down the room and pointing to the big glass jar, This is a carboy. See those brown dregs in the bottom? Don't sniff them or you'll get your nose burned off and don't get the stuff on your hands unless you want to lose your skin. The wizard picked up a short fat stick with a round blunt end and wagged it in Gom's face. This is a pestle and that a mortar. He tapped the pestle on the rim of a thick clay mixing bowl encrusted in stinking paste, half dried. Gom turned in distaste to the mixture bubbling on the blue flame, wondering what spell was forming there. What's that? That. Falgan said, frowning, is a crucible, a bowl for smelting metals. A small red clay bowl, scratched with many signs. Thinner than the mortar, its bulging sides smoke blackened from the flame beneath it. I mean, what's that inside? Gom said. The wizard had deliberately misunderstood. Fulgan sighed. Rectite! Ha! You're not the wiser, are you? It's a rare ore, boy, that ordinary folk have never heard of. Now, that's enough. You're not here today to bother me with noisy questions. The wizard, pointing picking up, continued to name names until Gon knew every article 
on the bench. And now, boy, Falcon said, you get busy washing and scouring and polishing and restoring these things to their proper racks. Here and here and here. The old man gestured about the benches. Then you shall dust all the bench tops, every one save. He went over to the bench with the big black box. This one. If you touch this box, I'll know, and you'll be sorry. Come. He led Gom to a small, dark alcove down the far end of the chamber. At the sight of the brushes and mops and brooms inside, Gom's spirits fell. These tools you know. So now, to work. Yuming silently, Gom obeyed. Yet soon he took to thinking, rock tight, a rare ore, used for making magic of some kind. He had never heard of it, and likely would not again for a while. He ran his duster over the spotless benches, thinking with longing back to Harvey's cobwebbed confusion. Such a mystical air of serendipity had been in that place. The feeling that marvellous accidents might happen to surprise even Harga herself. Not so here. Falcon would know, Gombet, if a single thing were out of order or happened out of place. Gom worked on, repeating Rucktite over and over silently to remember until he could write it down that night. When Gom was done washing up, Falgan had him sweeping and tidying needlessly until tea time. At last, Gom climbed into bed, spent. He'd been so glad to enter the wizard's workroom at last. And now? He wrote with savage strokes into his journal. I have twice the washing up and cleaning as before. And that crucible! The dregs of molten rucktite had set inside and were quite impossible to clean off, as Falgan must have known. He is a hard man and an unforgiving master. No wonder the others never stayed. There were still traces of the rucktite left in the bottom of the pot when Falgan sent me down to make tea. Not daring to say anything, I have hidden the dirty crucible at the bottom of the clean pile until tomorrow morning, when I shall finish scouring it the first chance I get. And so he meant to. But the next day, Holgen kept him so busy running around that he never got a chance.
And after that, the thing completely slipped his mind. For many days thereafter, Gorm cleaned and scoured and polished Falcon's utensils. Once he had his ears boxed for leaving a scruple of powder in a bowl and spoiling a spell. Once he almost had his ears boxed for cleaning only too well. On that morning, Falcon had three spells in the making all at once on three separate benches. He had gone clean up one bench, then the second. As soon as the third spell was completed, Gom, thinking to please Falgan by jumping to without being asked, took up a damp cloth to sweep some black grains off the bench top. As he reached out, he had a glimpse of the wizard whirling about. No, don't! Falgan cried. Cloth touched sand with a hiss and a puff of smoke. As Gom's knees buckled, he felt the wizard's hand close over his nose and mouth. Then the next thing he knew, he was lying at the foot of the workroom stair, the wizard wafting a handkerchief over him. Foolish boy! Falgan raised a hand to box his ears, lowered it again. I suppose you don't know any better, he muttered. Wait here. The wizard went downstairs. Gom closed his eyes. The floor was very cold, but he couldn't move. He didn't hear the wizard come back only felt a hand lifting his head and a cup set to his lips. Here, drink, boy. You'll be better in a moment. If not, you'll have to lie. I'm not up to carrying you down any more stairs. What happened? Gom asked weakly. You put wet to Agarax, that's what. You foolish lad, dream sand, as we wizards call it, the smoke of but one grain breathed in deep will put a grown man to sleep for full three days. Lucky I dragged you clear in time. Now I'm shut out of my own workroom for the rest of the day until the fumes have cleared and me with but one crack of a window. Two of my most difficult spells are spoiled. Next time, wait till I tell you to do something. Hear? Wrong if I do. Wrong if I don't, Gom grumbled under his breath. There is no pleasing the man. Agarax, dream sand, he wrote that night. Such strong magic stuff it is, without need of any spell. 
He wouldn't tell me where one finds it. But tis rare, and regular folk don't even know of it. This evening, when Falgan had me up there cleaning things away, I swept the rest of the grains into a dry cloth, which I have hidden under my bed. Tomorrow, I shall carve a little box to keep them in. Since they are not magic in themselves, and since Falgan had discarded them, I feel free to keep them by me. Never know when they might be of use. Much as Gom hated his workroom chores by handling those endless mortars and crucibles and tools, cleaning and polishing them, fetching them out and putting them back, Gom soon came to know them all. All that is, save the black box that stood alone. Day by day, as Gom worked around it, his curiosity increased. Its magic must be powerful indeed, and very secret. Many times he fancied that he heard it humming, but he never dared put his ear to the box or feel for vibrations. Not even when Falcon, back turned, was bent over some bench, seemingly absorbed in his spell-making. It wasn't worth the risk. Spring passed into early summer, but still Gom saw nothing of spells and their making, only their aftermath. Yet I hold on, he wrote in his journal, with Stormfleet's help and Hetheron's and K.K.'s wicked humour. He stopped, smiling at the memory of the little bird that morning, running up and down before the front door, flapping her wings wildly, pecking the ground in a mock panic, shrieking, Faster, boy! Faster! Or a box in the ears from your master! Then, slowly, so gradually that Gom did not notice exactly how it came about, he was finally assisting Falgan to mix his spells. Holding this mortar still, that book open at the proper page, while the wizard ground and mixed, steadying the crucible, while the wizard shook in powder or coloured droplet that sent clouds of smoke up into the dark. At last, Falgan let him use the tools he'd cleaned so long to grind rock and horn and root, to extract oils from the plants whose virtues Falgan had taught him, to concoct, decoct, and distill, to work with a crucible over the small blue flame, first with Falgan, then all by himself, while the wizard hovered at his elbow, 
Soon he was making simple remedies: lotion to quell the travelling sickness, ointment for sores that would not heal, fizz for headaches and unguent for a raspy chest so pungent that Gom's hands smelled of it for days afterward. One day. After Gom had gone down to make tea, there came a loud crash, and running upstairs to see, he found Falgan lying at the top of the workroom stair, eyes shut, blood trickling down his cheek and mingling with his beard. Gom knelt beside him. He must have fallen. There was a cut on the edge of the old man's cheekbone. He scrambled up, fetched a cloth, and a bowl of cold water. He bathed to the cut, but the bleeding would not stop. He looked around. The staunching ointment. Gom had helped make it. He knew exactly in which rack it was stored. He looked down uncertainly. Was the wizard really unconscious, or was this some trick to test what his resourcefulness, his blind obedience to the rule forbidding apprentices from applying their master's remedies? Another drop of blood well from the wizard's cut, and rolled down his cheek. Wrong if he did, wrong if he didn't. Gom ran down the chamber, took the ointment pot, and applied a liberal smear to the cut. The blood stopped flowing instantly. He cleaned the skin around the cut, then fetched the smelling pot. And stuck it under Falgan's nose. The wizard's lids fluttered open. He seemed dazed at first. Then he lit on Gorm. Boy, what's this? What? He put a hand to his cheek, wincing. The hand came away smeared with ointment. The wizard looked at it blankly. Then he saw the bloodied cloth. I remember now. I tripped. I think, going too fast for myself. Well, don't stand there. Help me up. Gom helped Falgan downstairs, and into bed. Then he brought the old man's supper tray. You, you used my remedies," the wizard said sharply. "What else did you do whilst I was lying there, huh?" Gom opened his mouth to protest, shut it again, remembering Hebron's words. Even so, the ingratitude. The old man 
reached out and gripped Gom's arm. Once a wizard, always a wizard boy. Don't mind me. You are a good lad, a tribute to your mother. It's lucky you were here. We lost Cosgard the Old some years back, very same way. Fell fourteen flights down his tower. Couldn't call anybody, of course. Found him a skeleton, bones picked clean by crows. Now, if you don't mind, take this key and lock the workroom door and bring it back straightway. I've had enough for today. There is no fathoming a wizard's mind, Gom wrote that night. One of the greatest mages in all Ulm, and he thinks in some ways like a simpleton. If I had not been there, who knows when Falgon would have woken up? If he'd woken up, so much blood he'd have lost. He himself owned as much. And yet he had me lock his workroom door against myself, lest I steal his precious secrets. Truly, the man has no sense of gratitude. So Gom thought. But the next afternoon, instead of having Gom help with spells, and doing his regular chores, Vulgan took him aside. You have done well, the wizard said. You have learned a deal of simple majory. But much of this is merely apothecary work. Now you shall begin to learn of subtler arts and practices of how a wizard comes by certain magic properties, and how he stores them in rod and rune, so that in the field he might call on them in a finger-snap. How do we do it, you may well ask. The wizard paused, gazing intently into Gom's face. Gom thought back to his mother's room, the lifetime's magic stored therein. He'd never seen her staff. Did she have one? Or was rune enough for her? Magic stored. His heart beat faster. Falgan was about to open some door to him. A door of some real worth at last. How, oh, sir? The answer's here. The wizard jabbed a bony finger against his grizzled temple. Here's where it's done, boy. In here. Aha! But don't think I'm handing you some quick and easy trick. The practice is simple. As you'll now see. But it takes years, years to master it. Come.
The wizard led Gon halfway down the chamber, where he stopped, pointing down. There, on the stone floor, was a small blue mat laid in a circle of pebbles, smooth and shiny. Here, step over those stones, careful not to touch them. Now, sit. Cross your legs, that's right. Now, hands on knees, close your eyes, and picture an apple. A big green apple on a twig. Got it? Gom shifted his ankles a bit, set his hands as bidden, and pictured a large green apple hanging in the darkness before his eyes. Right. Now, stay still and watch that apple until I come and tell you to stop. I warn you, let it slip and you'll have a bellyache worse than if you'd eaten it. Understand? No, don't answer. Just keep your eyes shut. Gon listened to the sound of the wizard's boots receding over the workroom floor. This was the secret of the wizard's awesome power. Picturing unripe apples? How? He dared not ask, but Gon thought of the pebbles all about him. Perhaps he could work it out for himself. Perhaps the wizard put a spell on him through the ring of stones. Perhaps he sucked in his breath as pain, sharp and fierce, gripped his belly. Pain remembered from his early forays into Meister Craw's orchard. He had lost the apple was picturing the pebbles instead. Quickly, he brought the apple back, and the pain faded. How had Falcon done that? Where was the spell? In the ring of stones, obviously. Why wasn't he supposed to touch them? He pictured Falcon placing them, chanting over them, Again, pain struck, goading Gom back to the apple. Truly, he could not believe it was so hard to hold his mind on one thing. Gom stared at his green apple doggedly. If he didn't want to feel that pain again, he'd better keep it there, steady and bright. Minutes passed. The sight of the apple began to make him hungry. He wondered how long before Falgan let him go downstairs to make tea. He'd baked fresh bread that morning with extra honey and a handful of raisins, his favourite with... The gripes were back, doubling him over. The apple, quick! With an effort, 
Gum straightened up, brought the apple image back into focus, and the pain receded. Reluctantly this time, it seemed to Gum. Oh, but his middle was aching now, as from a bout of colic. He remembered Stig bending over him, spoon in hand. Two of these, son, and you'll feel better. Tis a remedy, your mother. Gum caught himself just in time. Again and again his mind wandered out, and each time the pain brought it back. How long before Falgan came to release him? Random images crossed his mind. Of his sister Hilsa, of Hort and Mudge back in Greenvale, of Carrick, head bent over a big round pot, and Essie, smiling, of Ganache, green scales glowing brightly, a sign of his well-being, and of Katak. The apple swell, swamping Gom's inner sight with green light. Then it vanished, but no pain griped him. Strange, thought Gom. The green light still remained, reminding him of Ganache. Even as he thought that, the light began to waver, as though under water. A glint of red shot through the cool green watery light like Gom tried unsuccessfully to push the thought away. The spool seal stone, gleaming in its crevice above the mouth of Katak's prison. Yes, the seal stone. It was. Had Gom slipped somehow into a waking dream? Was this a sign, a warning? If so, of what? Fear drew Gom's mind to a point. From the depths of his dark prison hole, did the spoor seek him out? Cold brushed Gom's face. Not Cesare's light breath, no, not the playful draughts of deep underground, but something else. He took a step, resisting toward the cold. Katak's pull. No, no, he cried. I won't come to you. Let me go. Let me go. There, there, a voice said. I've let you go. You're all right, boy. 
Falcon's voice, oddly gentle and reassuring. Gom opened his eyes, found himself lying on the floor. The pebbles scattered about. In his head was a sort of buzz. The old familiar feeling of a waking dream's aftermath. He tried to sit up, fell back again, dazed. Here, hold on. The wizard pulled him up, helped him to a stool, and brought a cup of water. You went deep, that's for sure, and so quick. I've never seen the like, but then, your hogger's son, I mustn't let myself forget. Fulgen frowned. What did you see? More than an apple, I'd say. It'd take more than a green apple to get you shouting at the top of your voice. Gom looked up, found the old man's eyes sharp upon him. What had he shouted? He couldn't recall. What had he seen? Green light and the red glow of Katak's seal underwater. Water, he murmured. Water? You've got it in your hand, Hulgen cried. Why, I think the sitting's turned your head. But if you'd be a wizard, you'll just have to get used to it. He stood stiffly. Come on, up you get, and go and make the tea. You've had enough for today. But tomorrow afternoon, and every afternoon from now on, you'll sit an hour or two inside that ring and perform your mental exercises. Why? Because, Falgan frowned, while a wizard makes magic with things, he works it with his mind, a strong mind. You don't climb stairs with flabby legs, do you? Sha, he said to himself, the questions these boys do ask. Gom went slowly down to the kitchen. A waking dream, for sure. He ought to know. He'd had them often enough in the past. But he leaned his face against the wall and closed his eyes. In the past, they'd happened seemingly at random. In the middle of quite everyday affairs. This one, and he'd bet on it, had been brought on by the green apple. By his sitting down and drawing his mind to a point. But what had triggered it? Come shuddered. Not any of those good kind people he'd been daydreaming about. No, it had been a spore, and the vision? It had been a 
the cavern under Great Poop of Katak's prison cave. Why? He thought back over others in the past. Those waking dreams had warned him of things to come, both good and ill. Of finding gold under Windy Mountain, of meeting Mandrake, of Katak's pursuit, and now that green and wavery light. It had reminded him of his friend Gana, who had lighted the deep spaces with the glow of his scales. Ganesh had saved his life, had helped him shut the spoor away, and Ganesh had promised to guard Katak's dark hole and never let him escape. In the vision, the seal had been lit, the cave mouth sealed. Had that vision, therefore, come to tell him not to worry, to reassure him that all was well? Gone fervently, hope so.